0: Episode 108 of the Proper Mental Podcast. And my guest this week is Sean Flores, who is a model, an actor, and an OCD advocate. He's also a two times TED speaker where he's talked about the straight jacket of masculinity and the failures of multiculturalism. And Sean began to experience OCD seemingly out of nowhere, and it was actually triggered by a dream. And from there, he started to experience sexual orientation OCD and began to question his own sexual identity. And while obsessively searching for evidence that nothing had changed, these thoughts began to transform and move towards harm OCD, and he began to fear that he would hurt someone close to him. Obviously this was terrifying, and that pushed him into a breakdown, and it wasn't long after that that suicide-related OCD began to terrorise him as well. And it was when frantically searching online for some sort of help that he just happened to connect with the right therapist and find the right type of therapy. And he was able to start to rebuild himself and get a better understanding of what exactly OCD is and how to live with it as part of his life. And he's now dedicated to supporting others by unapologetically telling his story to raise awareness around his illness, particularly in the BAME community where there are additional barriers around getting support with any type of mental illness. And in this episode, Sean takes me through his story from his first experiences of OCD and how this all kind of all started with a dream. And he takes me through his breakdown and how he was able to get through it and out the other side. And it felt like a really important conversation to have because there's so much stigma around OCD. There's so many stereotypes. And a lot of people think that they know what it is and it is this thing, but there is so many different types of OCD and it manifests in so many ways. And what people experience is very individual and very personal. And to hear what Sean experienced with these particular types of OCD was a really hard listen. And um, I do think he's really, really brave for talking about this stuff. It's hard enough to talk about mental health and mental illness. It's harder again to talk about some of the more stigmatised and misunderstood types of mental health and mental illness. And then it's harder again when these things involve sexual identity and harm and suicide and things that are difficult to talk about anyway let alone when you throw him in the melting pot of OCD and mental illness and breakdowns. But Sean is able to articulate this really well. He's got a good understanding of his own story, his own journey and his experiences. And he's able to tell his story in a way that is really relatable and I think is really important for the people that need to hear it. We talk about the type of therapy that Sean used as part of his recovery and why that particular type of therapy works for him. And we talk about the layers of stigma around mental health and mental illness particularly in relation to masculinity, race, and culture. Because again, this when it comes to stigma, there's just so many layers, you know. And Sean's talking about mental illness as a man, which is difficult anyway, but also as a black man, which is difficult again, and also as a man from the Caribbean community, which adds different layers of stigma and misunderstanding as well. So as you can tell from that, it's a really deep episode. There really is a lot going on, and we cover a lot of ground. And I can't thank Sean enough for his time and for his bravery, Some of the things we talk about are particularly challenging and the way that Sean owns his story and takes control of it is, yeah, it's really inspiring. It was wonderful to chat to him. We talk about that too. We talk about the importance of owning your story, taking back control, dealing with the shame that comes with this stuff. Like I say, it goes everywhere. His TED Talks are amazing. I've put links to them in the episode notes. All his socials are in the episode notes as well. He's really waging war on OCD at the moment. I heard him on another interview say that OCD was the worst thing that's happened to him but now he intends to be the worst thing that happens to OCD and he's certainly fulfilling on that prophecy and if you like what Sean's talking about if you like what he's all about there's a lot of content at the moment on various platforms if you just throw it into Google you'll find more of Sean talking about this stuff if you'd like to learn more about OCD I've also recorded episodes with Catherine Benfield from Taming Olivia, and Stuart Ralph, who is the host of the OCD Stories podcast, so they're well worth a look in my back catalogue. And while you're exploring that back catalogue, feel free to leave me a review on iTunes or Spotify. And if you want to connect with me in any way, on social media, it's at Proper Mental Podcast. You can get me in all the usual places. The best place to get hold of me, if you fancy a chat, is to email me via the website. That's everything you need to know. This is episode 108 of the Proper Mental Podcast with Sean Flores. Thank you very much for listening. Enjoy. So here we are with another episode of The Proper Mental Podcast and my guest this week is Sean Flores. How are you, mate?
1: Man, listen, thank you, first of all, for bringing me onto your platform. The honor <clears throat> is absolutely mine. But yeah, I'm, I'm doing well. I've been on quite a few podcasts now. I've been writing quite a few articles um, all about, you know, obviously OCD. So that's been the front and center of everything that I'm doing. So I'm in a I'm in a place where recovery is going well and I'm understanding that, to serve the people from where who I come from has been a great part of my recovery.
0: Yeah, I see you really find that that's kind of helping you along that that journey as well, like the, the sharing and the talking and the, and the activism.
1: Oh, absolutely. Because I think when it comes to OCD, it presents some very unique challenges and some unique perspectives. A lot of people ordinarily don't talk about their OCD, you know, their thoughts and so on. But well, since I talk about it so openly, I've had Hundreds of people reach out to me and tell me they have OCD and people, friends, family, um, work colleagues, organizations I've worked with, people have just openly told me they've got OCD. And this is what I mean by the power of a story shared as a burden halved, And by telling us, telling your story, you unite other people under your common struggle
0: mate. That's such a good way of putting it. such a good way. And I think that we kind of forget when we get used to talking about these things, right? So you get used to talking about it with the people that are around you and I get used to talking about it. And then we talk to each other and we forget how many people are out there kind of like suffering alone almost, right? And then when these conversations, like you're doing at the moment, when, they, when they're popping up in maybe different places outside of this echo chamber around mental health and mental illness, then we can really reach those people who are just kind of, they're, they're stuck out there and they don't know what help is out there and, and what other people are going through, Hey. Eh?
1: Oh, absolutely. You know, with the OCD community, it's a beautiful community. And since so many people have reached out to me, I've never been in so much awe and never felt so loved and cared about with my OCD journey to know that other people out there have it. But you're right. In the echo chamber within the OCD community, people talk about their OCD, but there's more work to be done um, within the wider context of the world. And recently, I was on a TV show talking about OCD, and the common consensus around OCD, unfortunately, still remains. You know, it's all about cleaning and so much more, but. I wouldn't say it's necessarily those people's faults because they're not exposed to everything else in in their ordinary world. So this is why I try to blend my personal and my professional world with the communities that I serve, the communities that I'm a part of, to really raise awareness of what OCD really is, the devastating effects it has, the torturous element of OCD as well. But ultimately, it's trying to leave people in a better place than I found them to get them to realize that OCD is not the end of their life. And that for people that have OCD, you can lead a normal, happy and healthy life.
0: Yeah. And that is really empowering, isn't it? Because like when we're really poorly, we often you kind of think that you're done sometimes, right? Like this is me, me forever. And I think that what I really love about what you do, Sean, is that it kind of works on. On like two levels. So one there's the talking, there's the interviews, there's the writing. So you know, you can tell people that you know you can still go on to have like a really nice life while dealing with this stuff. But the other thing that you do is like you're incredibly productive, man. Like you 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 got a lot going on between like TED Talks and um I mean, how many degrees have you got, Sean?
1: <laughs> how many degrees? So I have criminology and sociology. I've got a master's in race and media and social justice. I did Another master's-like course in personal development. I did another life coaching course, but that was at the beginning of my OCD breakdown. So I need to go back and complete that. I did journalism as well, but I have three exams left to finish. Um, So yeah, degrees-wise, probably three degrees I would say I've got. Wow, Um, education has been a core element of my life and growing up especially from the Caribbean community we're always taught that education is the passport to the future and that it's the freedom that in which we can alleviate ourselves out of poverty so as much as education was fantastic for me I realized a long time ago that I didn't want to be on that conveyor belt of education in terms of master I mean undergraduate master's PhD job that's not necessarily how my life works right and I think for a very long time I had this idea that I wanted to be a journalist when I was younger. My biggest role model for myself was Tre- Sir Trevor MacDonald, who's from Trinidad and Tobago. He was the first ever black news anchorman on ITV. So he was a massive inspiration for me. And I thought I wanted to be like him because I love to tell stories of journalism. But then when I went to journalism school and I realised this was not what I thought it would be, now I've realised I like to work outside of the confines of the ordinary and to blend all the different experiences that I've got. So... I didn't think I was going to continue doing journalism, but I've used my journalism skills to write my stories and to put the facts in and to blend the personal with the professional, as I've said. But my TED Talks, yes. So one of them was on the failures of multiculturalism, but I really think it should have been aptly named the failures of the education system. It was me talking about my experience of being a young bat boy growing up and feeling as if I was too smart in class but i was dumbed down quite often because i was often seen as distracted and so much more so it was a very very interesting relationship i had with school and the education system and then my second one was about the straitjacket of masculinity so it's talking about male mental health and the need to have more men talk about their mental health and now i'm hoping eventually down the line to deliver a third tedx talk on ocd because whenever we think about ocd it's a very america centric narrative we need more in the uk so that's my plan. That's my goal.
0: Yeah, mate. Oh, that's awesome. And like I said, just being that, just having all those different, all the different things that you do and like it really shows people as well that people maybe if they're suffering right now and they think, oh, this is it, this is always going to be me. And then just to have people out there doing these things and you can see these people and go, do you know what? This isn't, you know, there is so much more for you to come. You know, we've just got to, just got to get well. That's it.
1: Oh, absolutely. And I think OCD can be a very much a double edged sword, right? Um, so I'm, I suspect I perhaps may have ADHD too as well because I look through my medical records and in the year 2000 I think there was an unofficial diagnosis of ADHD but it's a complicated one because young black boys are diagnosed too much with um, ADHD, we're overdiagnosed, diagnosed um, and quite often it, that's not always the case. But when it comes to my relationship with OCD, yes it's a double-edged sword. As much as it's caused me a lot of pain I'm trying to recycle that pain into pain into purpose and into passion and as I was saying to you one of the ways that I was able to alleviate myself out of my depressive episodes of OCD was I literally woke up and I say this um often to many people I literally went fuck this for how long am I going to be depressed how long am I going to be upset? Let's get up and let's change the world for people with OCD. Someone has to do it. So this is why I say that quite often I'm an unelected representative for the black community when it comes to speaking about OCD. So it's a, it's a heavy cross to bear, but it's a burden I've decided to carry because somebody needs to do it. You know, a lot of people complain about stuff and there's always a problem, but I'm very solutions focused. And that's, that's something that's been really important to me. So... For people out there who are listening, you're struggling right now. If you're in pain, you might as well get a reward from it. And don't cry to give up, cry to keep going. That's something I keep reminding myself, you know, in my hardest times. And I still have hard times, don't get me wrong. I still have rough mornings. I still have the thoughts. I've learned to remind myself there's an end goal that I've got in sight. And there's there's, there's a journey that I'm going on.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's a powerful way to look at it, man. I think sometimes when when we're ill with this stuff, it kind of um it's like it's the lack of control over your own life that can be you know that that drains the hope from it but that way of um you know of kind of like empowering people to just claw that back a little bit of control that can be a really really um really really powerful thing man for sure yeah definitely
1: what's your journey with mental health tell me a little bit more about yourself so my um i had a, a breakdown in
0: 2016 um, and it was kind of like triggered by the birth of my son. And I thought that at the time it was um, like a post postnatal thing. But it was only when I started to unpick my life and I kind of realized that I'd had uh, depressive episodes for a long, long time and particularly anxiety. So anxiety drives my depression and I, I I worry and I get myself in a state to the point where there's no energy left. And then I kind of get depressions and I spent... Um, yeah, between 2016 and uh, 2020, just sort of in between breakdowns and therapy and, you know, with my life on hold, really trying to put my life back together. Um, and yeah, very similar to yourself. You know, you, I think when you've been poorly, when you've been to that place, you um, it makes you very compassionate and it makes you want to contribute to the conversation and and be involved and help other people. It really like this, most of the people I speak to on this podcast are are very driven to make some sort of change, you know, whether it's like at a community level or a policy level or anything in between. And most of them also been to those dark places as well. And I think it kind of brings that humanness out in us sometimes.
1: Oh, absolutely. I think if it wasn't for OCD in a very strange way, I, I, I've I've found sanctuary in my suffering with OCD. I've found a very strange allure in the, in the sense of I know who I am, I know who I want to be and OCD always shows me who I really am, right? OCD reminds me of what my values are by, you know, telling me really intrusive thoughts. I'm like, oh, there we go, just reminding me of what my values are. And I think it's that human it's that human element I think that you really touched on. I think before OCD I never really understood mental health. Although my mum had a very depressive episode when my dad died on Christmas Day. And she my mum's quite anxious. But I think having OCD and having the experiences I've had before OCD have allowed me to articulate my experiences in ways that my community and the Caribbean community and growing up, I haven't always been able to. I think I've always sought to have the language to be able to describe my experiences. And I think if it wasn't for OCD, I wouldn't have been able to connect with other people from the OCD community, which has just been a breath of fresh air. In a time when the air I was breathing was stale and my mind felt like it was suffocating me and I felt like I was drowning, I have finally been able to find a life jacket and come to to shore. By just telling my story and to serve people and I I think people forget this right to get the one of the best ways to get yourself out of a victim mindset is to be of service to other people because it does wonders for your dopamine levels but also it reminds yourself that you've got value and you're cared about and you're loved and you're cherished that's something that's been of unestimated importance to me on my journey with OCD you know And I just can't begin to tell people the value of your existence. You mean something. You matter. Even when you don't feel like you matter, you honestly matter. And this is why I leave my DMs open to people. And I've met people with OCD that I've never met in... um, I've met people online that I'm just like, yo, let's just meet up and go for a coffee. Let's just meet up and eat. Because what do I have to lose by doing that? People we are part of a community. Humans need a sense of belonging. And I think OCD showed me that I needed a stronger sense of community, but I also needed a stronger sense of humanity.
0: Yeah, that's beautifully put, man. Beautifully. I love that thing of, um, like, when you when you serve others, essentially, serve your local community, it kind of, so much of this stuff, when we're, when our, like, our brains collapse, we turn on ourselves, right? And is that self-hatred. How can you hate yourself if you're doing something good how can you be a piece of shit if you're like doing this good stuff in the world it's like proving that voice in your head wrong isn't it and and re-getting control over it man I love that I love that so um so much um can we rewind a little bit um Sean and to when OCD like made an appearance in into your life you know how how long ago did that did that start for you?
1: So when people ask me this question, my first initial thought is always goes to when I had a dream that I saw a guy in boxers and I woke up and I was 100% convinced I was gay. And obviously in the OCD community, we usually refer to it as the day your brain breaks. That's just it's like this snapping moment almost. I was. I vomited. I was so anxious. I thought this was my new sense of sexuality. I was always looking around, trying to find evidence to prove that I was gay. Um, I, I did everything you could imagine to try and prove my sexuality, except indulging acts of the same with the same sex. But truthfully, I think my OCD episode was before that. Um, I had caught chlamydia three times, unfortunately. First relationship, I was a virgin, but she had um, I believe she had cheated on me. The second time, I was dating a girl, and um, when I went to the toilet, it stung to the high heavens, and I called her, and I said to her, is there something you need to tell me? Because you know when you know yourself, there's something a bit up. She was like, I've got traces of chlamydia. I went to the doctor. The doctor said, there's no such thing as traces. You have chlamydia or not. The third time, um, I was... I was seeing somebody and they gave me chlamydia as well. So you would say great things happen in free, but not according to OCD. And I think that was my trigger really and truly. Then after the gay thought, the next new thought was HIV. That was my new obsession. I was worried I had HIV. Then that migrated to um, when I was with a girl that I was seeing, um, I had this intrusive thought surrounding the word rape and it panicked me. I screamed at her to leave the house because I was convinced I was going to hurt her it was probably one of the darkest times of my life because I was raised with a very strong army of women. And um, when my dad died, um, all my aunties came together to look after me. So I was raised by a very strong and powerful matriarchal unit, which I think informed me heavily of the young man that I want to be. Um, and the young man that I was at the time. Um, so then that happened and I called the ambulance. I was like, I'm hearing voices. There's something going on. There's something wrong. Please tell me what's going on. So I think it was a panic attack ultimately is what, is what I was going through. So then I sought out therapy. And what happened was I saw a psychodynamic therapist. And if anyone knows OCD, you don't see a psychodynamic therapist. It makes it worse. They push you further down a rabbit hole. So I had another breakdown. And this next breakdown was I was on the bus and I looked at a man and it was just a thought that popped into my head, fight him. I was like, oh, no, 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 hold up. So I got off the bus, started crying. I was with my friend. And I thought, all right, cool, I'm okay. I've been through this breakdown before. I know there's something wrong with me, but I've got through it before. So I went to this shop to eat food. Suicide fought here. It was an image of me jumping off a bridge. So I panicked, got into an Uber, called all my friends and I told them I'm suicidal. I want to die. Come around. It's the last time you're ever going to see me. I was crying. My friends are upset. And they stayed with me for the next couple of days. But it was on Saturday, the 4th of June. I couldn't take it anymore. I woke up, all the thoughts were in my head. Every thought you could have imagined, um, rape, murder, suicide, all these horrible thoughts. Well, one thing you learn about your OCD recovery is to not label thoughts as good or bad. Thoughts are just thoughts. I scoured the internet, begging, looking for help. I I sent emails begging for people to try and help me. And on Instagram, I found a woman called the Anxiety Whisperer, um, Emma Garrick, otherwise known as the Anxiety Whisperer. And um, I reached out to her and I said, please, there's something wrong with me. Please help me. And she called me and I was just crying my absolute eyes out. And she's got lived experience of OCD. So she's recovered and she understands OCD. And um, we started therapy on Monday and... I remember on the Saturday after the phone call and the Sunday and the Monday before therapy, I just wanted time to swallow me up. I didn't want to be alive anymore. I thought I'm having these thoughts. I belong in a mental hospital. Why am I having these thoughts? I don't want to harm people. I don't want to do these things, but why am I having these thoughts? And oh, Why can't I get rid of them? And thanks to my therapist, um, she's helped me build the confidence, the courage and the tools to really be out there and to help people. So I can't thank my therapist enough, you know, Since speaking about my OCD story um, on podcasts and articles and I just had a piece released in the Metro and I've got a few more coming out in some magazines. It has been. It's been an incredible journey. It's been life in 360, I suppose, because now I'm thinking about becoming an OCD therapist.
0: Wow. Because we don't have enough
1: black men who are therapists in the first place, but we don't have enough men who are also therapists as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, very much so. It's um it's interesting you mentioned that in O C D you talk about when your when your brain breaks. Um and that's a, a really interesting way of looking at it. And it's so common with a lot of people's um mental health stories is that when something breaks, it does feel like it breaks out of nowhere. Yeah, but quite it felt often like a snap
1: almost. It felt yeah. like no. I felt like I was at war with my mind is the only way to describe it.
0: Yeah. But quite often, as you said, it's that's the that's the final straw, right? So the breaking point doesn't happen out of nowhere. There's some sort of build-up, even if we don't know it. It was certainly the case with me. I had no idea I wasn't very well until everything broke. And then when I unpicked it afterwards, it was like, oh yeah, this has been going on for a while.
1: Can I ask you how, so I know you said you had a breakdown. How did your breakdown manifest? Like what happened for you? If you, if you don't mind me asking. No,
0: no, not at all. Not at all. So like after my, my son was born, the way I describe it is that there was no, my I was living life in a way that, it was so inauthentic and it was so full of pretending to, I would put on masks a lot for other people and for different situations. And I kind of lost sight of who I, who I was, you know, and my whole life was living against my values, against my core beliefs. And when my son was born, there was no room. I couldn't absorb it, you know? And um, yeah, and that's how it felt to me. It was like my brain um, snapped and I just turned on myself and it was all, it was all very, very dark. Um, I got suicidal very, very quickly and just lots of stress. I suddenly would lose my temp. The smallest thing, you know, if we ran out of tea bags, I'd smash our kitchen up, you know, and I'm not an angry man. It was this rage was would just come out of me. It was the only emotion that I could I could summon. Um, and yeah, that's that for me was that like I had no control of my emotions, just would randomly just break down in, in like floods of tears out of nowhere for nothing. And there would even be a part of me that would be saying, like this is not right, you know? And almost afterwards I'd get up and I'd be like, what, what was that? It was almost like an out-of-body experience, you know? Um, yeah,
1: I know how you feel uh, in terms of an out-of-body experience. It's quite frightening because it's your brain. So from what we understand about breakdowns quite often, especially with OCD, is it's a maladaptive behavior. It's your brain turning in on itself to protect itself. It's your brain almost hitting default panic button and going, yo, listen, we need to protect ourselves. So everything becomes a threat. So it sounds like, probably you were in a very much of a survival mindset.
0: Yeah, very much so, yeah. And I I, I now know that my sort of, the roots of my I don't know, stuff I suppose is anxiety driven and that's very similar to OCD, isn't it? There's sort of, there's a lot of crossovers um, in some in some ways between anxiety and, and OCD. They just take different directions. Um, but yeah, for me, it was kind of, uh, I was on, I was switched on because I was yeah. in, I, I was pretending to be all these different people for all these different situations. And you can't live like that, right? So it was was too much. It was like being in a constant fight or flight without knowing it because it became the norm for me. And all the stuff that I now know is down to my mental health, I thought was personality. I thought I was just a fucking weird kid. So I'd hated myself for that. And I tried to not show that because I can't, and no one can find out I'm weird. If anyone finds out I'm weird and I think these things and I behave this way, then that's it. I I can't. find out. So that pretending to be like everyone else when I wasn't like everyone else, that was, um, that that's what I couldn't keep up. You know, I just couldn't, couldn't do that forever.
1: Oh absolutely and I and I think the first thing I want to say is thank you and a huge respect for sharing that story because often as men to be so open and vulnerable and to be raw and to be authentic with our stories not many men can do so this is why I think what you're doing is is revolutionary is revolutionary on your platform and you deserve a lot more credit because there's people like yourself and um, other platforms that just really inspire me. And I know you're doing good work for men out there. Most importantly, even if you don't aim to be solely for men, you're changing the world for a lot of men out there who are afraid to be really vulnerable with themselves.
0: Yeah, sometimes that's the hardest person to be vulnerable with, Sean. Sure. You know, like. Uh, but yeah, thank you very much for the kind words. That's a beautiful thing, man. Thank you. But um, yeah, it's being sometimes. Like yourself is the hardest person to be uh to be vulnerable with, right?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um strangely enough, I'm actually really quite self-aware as a person. And why I say that was because when I knew something was going on, you know, some people won't really think twice about what's going on. They're like, "Mm, no, this is just me, this is just this. For me, it was always like there's something not quite right. You know, when you're like, I'm having these thoughts, but this is not who I am. This is not this is not testament to who I am as a person so it made me really sit there and be like no 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 no, hold up hold up and I think when I gave my TED talk and I cried and I spoke about the power that one of my friends had in my life it was because it was for the very first time I think I sat in real gratitude for the good friends I've got around me the friends that they're not yes men they're people that challenge me they hold me accountable they hold me responsible for things and that has been so important. And one of my friends, when my dad died, obviously, and I met my friend years after that, in many ways, he was like a father figure to me. And I've always struggled in many ways to be very emotional at times because it feels that many times like I'm being a bitch, essentially, is what I'm saying. Um, you know, with a man, our masculinity must be present at all times. We must constantly be masculine. That The idea to cry to means to be quote-unquote feminine And for me, that TEDx talk was a changing point. I wanted to be in touch with my emotions. I really wanted to be present and for people to see that a young black man, and at the time I was really muscular actually from going to the gym, which really throws people off because there's this idea being a black man, I suppose, heterosexual, with muscle, with social status, that we don't get upset at things. We do. We get upset. And this is why I think with OCD especially, I talk about it just so openly because... The amount of black people that, as I said, and F- other ethnic minorities, that have come out with me, come come to me and said, "Sean, I've got OCD too."
0: Yeah, yeah. So, it's yeah. almost it's almost like someone's got to go first, right? Oh, so absolutely. Once someone goes first, then everyone else goes. Oh, I if, if Sean can do it, I can do it. You know? That's, yeah, uh, yeah, definitely. When you were like a young man growing up, Sean, like, what did you know about the mental health conversation? You know, when uh, um, OCD appears in your life, had you. Uh, you know did you kind of have any idea about this stuff or was it on your radar at all
1: so when i was yo- so when i was younger from what i understood about ocd i always understood ocd from that show 20 20- in 2013 um, obsessive compulsive cleaners and they and i think from that demonstration or the way they present ocd they present it as something to be desired as if ocd is like a quirk essentially that's all i knew i didn't know anything else about ocd so When I was told that I had OCD, I couldn't understand it. And when I read into pure O, which is um, not a scientific term, but it stands for purely obsessional, which is repetitive, unwanted, intrusive thoughts, I was shocked that OCD presented itself like that. Um, But it, it opened a brand new world for me in that sense. So I went from not knowing anything about OCD and having a certain image and idea of OCD to having a completely different perception of what OCD actually was. Because I've got a, now a lived, tangible experience of it.
0: Yeah, I think the media's got a lot to answer for with the stigma around OCD, hasn't it? And this whole, um, you know, just this narrative about, yeah, cleaning. And like you say, almost something to be aspired to, isn't it? And like Absolutely. That's just, yeah, that kind of stops a lot of people getting help and, and speaking up, I think. Yeah, yeah
1: so. and I think... So OCD presents itself in, as I said, somewhat, some of it is intrusive thoughts, but I'll give you some of the themes. There's sexual orientation OCD, which is you constantly question your sexual orientation, um, sexual, um, sexuality. There's harm OCD. So you have a fear of hurting others and hurting yourself. Then there's pedophilia OCD, which is the fear that you're a pedophile, a fear that you're going to do something wrong to kids. There's schizophrenia OCD, which is a fear that you're schizophrenic, bipolar OCD. But one of the ones I really want to explore with a lot of people is race OCD. So no one talks about race OCD, but I know people who have race OCD and they have this fear they're going to say something racist. They have this fear that they're that they're a bad person because they have certain thoughts in their head. These there's so many subtypes of OCD that are they have so much stigma and shame attached to it. And because it's so taboo, nobody talks about it. And this is the biggest issue. I often say by having dialogue, we can get closer to some sort of treatment and truth for people. And this is why I speak unapologetically about my OCD because when my first other article was released and I mentioned the word rape, I remember my first initial thought was, to, um, no, no, I don't want people reading that because I don't want people thinking I'm a rapist. But I said, let me leave it up to people. People need to read the article and realize that they need to read the whole article to understand that it's a mental disorder, well, it's a mental illness, disorder, difficulty, whichever term you want to use, and let people come to their own conclusions on that. And I was saying often that how many men do you think we've lost to OCD because they have certain thoughts that they cannot cope with? Because when I had those thoughts, I wanted to kill myself at some points because I said, I don't want to hurt anyone. I do not want to hurt anyone. I said, I just don't want to hurt anyone. So this is why... It's a deep conversation that needs to be had and it's a lot of education that needs to be happening. And this is why I try to do my best to talk on different media platforms and to present the information as many ways as different ways as I can.
0: Yeah, definitely. It's like the more we kind of look at the stigma around talking about mental illness, that you see all the layers, right? So it's hard enough to talk about this stuff anyway, because a lot of people just don't have the words. I didn't have the words was one of the reasons why I didn't, I, I, you know, I didn't know what was going on with me. So like, how do you talk about it if you don't know how to talk about it? And then after that, there's a the whole masculinity issue and being a man and being strong and not showing these, you know, these emotions. And then if you keep digging, there's more and more stigma. And if these things are hard to talk about, and you don't have the words, and you don't want to. Um, you know appear weak and then you have to sit down with another person and look at them and say like I'm worried I might be a rapist or I'm worried that I might be a racist or like that's heavy you know and you can like you say you can see why people suffer with that in silence but shame dies in the light right shame dies in the light
1: absolutely and I think a story shared is a burden half but one thing I think that comes with the story is that as a young man you tell people is one of my friends when I told her I said, I've like had rape thoughts and I'm terrified of them. She said, wait, why are you terrified of rape thoughts? Well, I said, what moral man or what what decent man wants to rape a woman? Like it's, it's, it's a, I'm sure even yourself, Tom, it's probably one of your biggest fears, you know, being a rapist. And I said this to some of my other friends who have um had complicated relationships where we all, most men, we're terrified of being called a rapist we're, because consent is, is is a core element of what's been going on in life with the Me Too movement. But funnily enough, one interesting point that was made by the OCD story, Stuart Ralph, he said the Me Too movement really shook up a lot of things for men because a lot of men already, we had a fear of being a rapist, but now con- the idea of consent is extremely black and white and consent's not black and white. People don't realise this, that... If a man was to ask to kiss you for a lot of women, they don't, it's not attractive anymore. There's the element of surprise that it has to be. And a lot of men that terrified. And I know a lot of my friends to this day where they said, what do they like in sex? They like consent. Most of us men like direct, clear consent. But within the social norms of dating, not everything else is black and white. And not many men are brave enough to say this. And there's a lot of women out there who are honest enough to say, yes, consent is not black and white. There's implied consent, there's non-implied consent, there's yes, no, and there's other forms of consent. And this is why I think the idea of sexual harm to others really played on me very heavily because I understood the nuances of my sexual relationships and dynamics with people. But still to this day, I've learned to let go of the fear of being a rapist. Um, It still can trouble me at times, but I've learned to realize a thought is just a thought. A thought doesn't say anything about who I am. And I'm thankful in many strange ways that I'm worried because it means I care about the actions that I take and and what I engage with with other people
0: yeah definitely someone wants it might have been Stuart actually I've had Stuart on and um, he said like OCD tends to go for the the good parts of you it tends to go for the things that you love it tends to attack the important stuff and um, you mentioned before how it kind of it almost like shines a light on your values because if OCD is attacking these things then these are clearly things that are important to you and that you can be proud of you know
1: yeah absolutely and, and it's a very strange way to see it but I really think that's a very important way to see it because often at times we can feel burdened and 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 dragged down by OCD. And that is sometimes how I feel. Don't get me wrong. As I said, I'm very realistic with my journey. Recovery is not always easy. Recovery is not always 100%. Some days you're good. Some days you're bad. But OCD is showing to you what really matters and what really cares. Doesn't that tell you something about who you are? That's why it's a double-edged sword.
0: yeah, yeah.
1: Mate, it's a lot. It's a
0: lot to think about. Yeah. I'm, I'm really interested after, after you met um, Emma on Instagram and, you know, you got start to get some information and what did that look like when you first entered the therapeutic process? Because sometimes like it's easy to like once we get past being sick, we can talk about when we're sick and when we're well, we can talk about being well. But there's a lot of people that are kind of stuck in the middle when you're taking those first steps and leaning into all that, the the uncomfort that comes with therapy. What did that look like for you, Sean, when you first started to work on this stuff and get help?
1: So the very first couple of sessions, I was crying all the time. I couldn't stop crying. Um, Emma was very patient with me and very understanding because she understands how nasty an illness OCD can be when it rears its head. And so with OCD, you have CBT-ERP, which is known as the gold standard. So it's cognitive behavioral therapy, exposure response prevention. And I had that alongside a dose of ACT, which is acceptance and commitment therapy, where you learn to accept and you commit to your change. So one of the things I had to do surrounding my um, biggest fears was I had to watch shows with my biggest fears, bipolar, schizophrenia, rape, I had to write a rape script. And in that rape script, I had to write, I was a rapist. I was going to do this and I was crying. And I'll never forget, I was visibly shaking and crying. I was, cause in my head, I meant I thought writing this and thinking about this meant I was going to do something to someone. And it was so horrible to do at the time. But after the session, I fell asleep and I woke up and I was like, that was exactly what I needed to keep showing my brain that we've got nothing to be afraid of. Um, and that's something that was really important. That was one of the um, exposures I did. Another one of the exposures was when I was having suicide thoughts, I had to go to a bridge and just stand by the bridge, let all the thoughts come, let the discomfort come and hold out because anxiety always has a peak. But also another thing to remember with exposures is don't do exposures by yourself. Always try and do it with a trained professional. That's something really important. I'm putting that out there as a caveat because I know for some people exposures can be too much. The anxiety can be too much. It can be like this sickening gut-wrenching feeling that you can't shake off, but that's some of the stuff that I've had to do in therapy. Um, some of the other things I've had to do in therapy were, you know, my therapist would try and trigger me deliberately. She'd let me get triggered and sit in that discomfort, and I just had to learn to operate through that discomfort. Um, so I, I think quite luckily in some ways, it's allowed me to be a lot more high function of my anxiety. I still feel anxiety, but I always remember anxiety has a peak, and then it drops, because Anxiety is your brain screaming at you, trying to protect you. But quite often in the modern world, anxiety is a liar. People forget that the modern mind is still, we're still very primarily wired. So anxiety is going to try and do all it can to protect us. But you need to keep showing your brain, I'm in control. I'm allowed to feel anxiety, but I can keep pushing forward, irrespective.
0: Yeah, it can be one of the hardest things, can it, about, um, about recovering, about getting well, is that a lot of the process around that it is really scary and it is really hard and you have to do really challenging things and I've talked about I've talked about this on the show a lot before but sometimes when you when you're real and you're in a dark place at least you know every inch of that darkness right at least you that gives you some control and the idea of stepping out of it and, and doing these things can be really scary can't it the help is is more unknown you don't know what's going to happen and, and that can be really um really challenging as well I think.
1: Oh, absolutely. But I I, I often say to people that it's in the unknown where you grow the most. You need discomfort to be able to grow. And often through the trauma that I've gone through with OCD, because OCD is incredibly traumatic. Nobody, I don't believe anybody in this world wants to have OCD, but you learn to make peace with the turmoil o- OCD can f- um, put you in right OCD in many ways I liken to a metaphor of quicksand the more you try to fight OCD is the deeper you get pulled into it the less you fight the more freedom that you find through it and it needs daily man- management I meditate every day I journal every day I do my exposures pretty much even when I'm feeling anxious I'm like all right we gotta get outside anything OCD tries to tell me differently to do I go and do because I, I, rem- I, rem- I remember that when I was at my worst, I didn't want to eat. I didn't want to shower. I didn't want to do anything. But my therapist said, Sean, just do the simple things. That food you don't want to eat, have one meal a day. Make it, um, if you can, get two in. If you can, get three. Do those simple things and keep showing up. Keep showing up. And showing up is all you can do, right? And I think the one of the key parts of my recovery has been accepting OCD is something I perhaps will have to live with for the rest of my life. But it does not mean it's the end of my life
0: yeah yeah definitely it's a lovely way of uh of looking at it you know lovely way of looking at it I was, I was really interested sean as well to chat about because sometimes the things that affect how we see our mental health and how we uh, how we reach out and get help about it is is our our, our community you know and our culture around us and i'm not going to ask you to speak on behalf of all caribbean people but how is being part of the caribbean community Like what's how do um how do Caribbean people see mental health? Because like culturally, different uh, demographics of people see this stuff really differently, right?
1: Absolutely. I think the relationship with the Caribbean community, especially, has been heavily influenced by colonization slavery. So there's this idea that by going to medical institutions, mental institutions, that you're gonna be seen as crazy, there's something wrong with you when I think for a very long time. We spent a lot of time hiding a lot of our ailments and illnesses in the fear of being locked up and in the fear of being seen as unwell. And I think with a lot of Caribbeans, we like to be in control of our own destiny and our own life and to surrender to institutions that in many ways remove our agency can be one of the most terrifying things. And I think that's where a lot of my own fears have come from. But slavery and colonization have heavily impacted the way we see mental health, right? when we think about um well, statistically speaking that black boys up until the age of 11 have um mental health on par with their white counterparts but after 11 something goes wrong with their mental health whether it's them um, in, in inequalities in society rear its ugly heads rear rear its ugly head and so much more but also black boys in general are more likely to be sectioned under the mental health act and we're more likely to become in touch with the mental health institutions via the criminal justice system now that tells you something right that we're trying to cure something that could be prevented we could prevent it from getting to that that place now in some parts of it I think it's discrimination cultural barriers stigmas around mental health where we don't want to be seen as weak masculinity um, but culturally speaking there's not much conversation going on around mental health and the dichotomy between our mental health and the mental health providers is one that needs repairing but I think it takes us to trust systems that ordinarily in the past have not always done right by us personally. Now, I'll give you a couple of examples. I know a lot of people who have been sectioned under the Mental Health Act simply because of the way they present their symptoms, they've been seen as a threat. Whereas I think a white counterpart of another ethnicity wouldn't be seen as that. Now, one of my biggest fears when I had some of my thoughts would be, if the police came to come and check on me, they'd probably be really worried. I'm six foot three, I'm quite tall and I'm quite broad. I can be seen as a physical threat compared to a a man who's probably a lot smaller, a different race, and probably potentially a different background. There's many different layers and nuances to these answers. And it's not as funnily enough, but not as a pun, but it's not as black and white as people think. These things operate within grey areas and we need to dissect and pull a lot of these things apart to really do more for the communities in which we serve. Now, the black community is one thing, and I think a lot of um, conversations around mental health are changing, but there's other communities that also really struggle. I think in the East Asian community and the South Asian community, conversations around mental health also do not exist. And there's even, I think in some languages, mental health, that concept doesn't really come to fruition in any way, shape or form. So that's why I think... I think a lot of what happens within the Caribbean community, it's the fear of being seen as mad. Madness is something you don't want to be seen as. And you don't want to be a topic of conversation amongst um your family and your family friends because they'll start to look down on you. They look down on you as if to say, you know, we can accept that at times physically we can get injured. Like I tore my ACL earlier this year. But when it comes to mental health, it's still that stigma that we have surrounding it that, we haven't removed and i think some stigmas are good in society but i think we need to remove a lot of stigmas about mental health because at the end of the day most people who are mentally unwell they're not massively always a threat to other people they're more of a threat to themselves and do we not have a due diligence in society to best protect people as much as we can to preserve human life and to find it valuable
0: yeah yeah definitely i mean i suppose if like you got to look at it if um, because of the colour of your skin, if you're more likely to get sectioned, well, then, of course, people aren't going to speak up. Because if you do like a survey and you ask people, like, what's your biggest fear if you do ask for help? Most people are going to say getting sectioned. And then if the statistics show that you're like four times more likely to get sectioned than a white person, well, of course, no one's speaking up. Right. It's just like it's obvious. Yeah.
1: And. Interestingly enough, there was an article in Psychology Today that spoke about how racism quite often um, exacerbates OCD symptoms because you end up trying to hide your symptoms more, so you don't get caught doing your obsessions or your compulsions. And funnily enough, when when we talk about OCD, when I typed in OCD, I could only find mainly white people that had OCD, and that's by no fault of their own. White people are quite often, they talk a lot more openly. So Howie Mendel, Leonardo DiCaprio, Justin Timberlake, Jessica Albert, even Donald Trump, they all have OCD. But when you think about black people that have OCD, the only people that I know about is J. Cole, Kelly Rowland, and Michael Jackson. Most black people don't speak up about their OCD, but now I'm really trying to inspire and widen that conversation around OCD because... Like what you said, if you're more likely to be sections, you're not really going to want to call, you know, you know, the the mental health um, people who deal with mental health. And also a lot of people have a lot of fears around mental health that when you get sectioned, it's the end of your life and it's going to ruin your life. You're not going to be able to lead a normal job. You're going to be looked down upon. You're going to be seen as a victim. You're going to be infantilized almost like, oh, they've had like a mental health breakdown. So, you know, they can't they're not capable of doing anything. Whereas a lot of people that have had mental health breakdowns, as you said, they've been to the darkness and they know what it's like to come back out to the light. You have a very different perspective on the world. Yeah, yeah,
0: definitely. Something as well that I've um, kind of noticed from talking to people on this podcast from the BAME community is that the conversation is moving really, really quick as well. Um, with some groups of people so some people would be like yeah i can talk about my mental health but i can't talk to my grandmother for instance and that's only like what one generation two generations removed and it's gone from like no talking it doesn't exist to having open conversations and there's got to be something in that isn't it the speed that people are um are learning about this and talking about this
1: and and i think What's really important and the one thing that I've realized is when I've sent my articles through to a lot of people, a lot of people, the first thing they've ever said to me is, oh, I didn't know that was OCD. Oh, I didn't know this is how OCD um, presented itself. So that's been another thing. But when I send my articles and my podcast to my family members, like my aunties and uh, my my mum as well, my mum did not know that's how OCD presented itself. She was shocked. She called me up and she said, I really didn't know this is how OCD was and I said well there you go mum now you understand it because I I do also think my mum has an undiagnosed anxiety disorder but my mum's not going to get help in my mum's head um church is her therapy
0: yeah I, so I think that's very common isn't it with the um the older the older generations that um absolutely yeah yeah very much so oh mate so it's like yeah there's just so much that you're doing that we could talk about that's really um Really uh, important, you know, shining light on all these different aspects, and it's this these levels of stigma that that really get in the way, isn't it? When we try and break down that there's so many different reasons, but it's really interesting. You've mentioned a few times today about the the nuances in these conversations, and I think we can apply that to to mental health, but we can apply it to any of the big conversations. Is that that it's there isn't black and white? It isn't easy, and I think because people are really scared of getting things wrong, and I know I feel like this sometimes, definitely, is that maybe we don't engage in the things that are important to to talk about in case we get them wrong you know and i think by by talking more about the nuances and the subtle differences i think that we can really open up a space for people to talk because people think if i go and talk about mental illness or i go and talk about race or whatever um and i get something wrong that i'm going to get piled on on twitter and everyone's going to think I'm this and everyone's going to think i'm that but we need to dig in don't we to find the to I suppose if by having these conversations, we can almost give people the words to join in rather than disengaging with these conversations.
1: Absolutely. And this is why I think a lot of what I do, I really try to facilitate open conversation and the freedom for people to ask me whatever questions that they want without worrying if they're going to offend me. At the end of the day, offense is taken, not given, right? And I, and this is me being accountable and responsible for my own life. When people have made the throwaway, um, dehumanizing comments about OCD in terms of, oh, isn't that that cleaning thing? I just take it as a moment to engage with them, to not scream, to not shout. I understand how frustrating it can be. And I know everybody is different. But I find the approach that practices a lot more empathy and humanity goes a lot further than the screaming down someone's throat and cancelling them. Anyone knows that cancelling does not work. You relegate ideas and behaviors to the underground. You need things to come out into the light. So that's where you can challenge it. And this is why I say criticism polishes the diamond that is the truth. Wim Hof said that and I heard that and I was like, I really resonate with that. So this is why I have to have open, candid conversations. And I think from having, for example, having this podcast with you, it sets a precedent. It sets a tone in which I feel like you know and your listeners are gonna know that if you reach out to me, be unafraid to ask me something. Don't be afraid. Be fearless. Come and ask me whatever you want to ask me and I'm going to answer it as truthfully as I can and I'm going to try and do my best to present information in a way that is going to be palatable.
0: Yeah, yeah. And that's lovely because, yeah, people, there's no such thing as a stupid question. If you don't know, you know, like, when it comes to the language around mental health, I just think people are doing the best they can with what they've got and as soon as someone uses the wrong word and like you say, it is frustrating and it is unset, you know, it can be upsetting but, yeah, if we... If we crack down on that too hard, then people are just going to stop engaging. They're just going to stop having the conversation altogether, and then then nothing nothing changes at all. Yeah, definitely, man. What's coming up, mate? Because like you're so busy at the moment, and you know what? Like I've just thought of this now. But as you as someone who is really busy, right, you're spinning all these plates. You've got all these things going on. How do you take care of yourself? You know, how do you manage your own recovery while being there for other people?
1: So a big part of my recovery has been helping other people as well, knowing that I've been in that place and giving them somebody that can empathize with them, not not just sympathy. Because I think sympathy can be really annoying at times, but someone who, like, I actually understand how you feel. I know where you are, and you're going to get better. But another big part of my recovery has been... Speaking. you know, Speaking has been a very, as I, I've said this many, many times, it's been a cathartic experience. It removes the coats that I've had on. And to share that story has just done wonders for other people. And in turn, that's helped me because it showed that, again, we're not alone. But coming up, oh no, so another thing that I do, as I said, is I meditate, I journal, I practice my gratitude very regularly. So it keeps me out of a scarcity mindset and keeps me in, a, in an abundance mindset to show that there's more that I've got to life regardless of what's going on in my head but what I've got coming up is I'm a volunteer advocate with Orchard OCD so I speak to um, we're the only UK based charity funding faster and better treatment for people with OCD Um, I've signed up to the psilocybin OCD trials. So psilocybin has been shown to have really promising effects on people with OCD and just depression and anxiety because it restarts your brain essentially and it gives you a chance. It enhances neuroplasticity is me shortening down what it is. And neuroplasticity is a chance to create new and better pathways in your brain that aid and better your existence essentially is what I'm saying. So that's one thing. I'm hoping to deliver another TEDx talk. Um, I'm hoping to become an ambassador for International um, OCD Foundation. So speaking to them about helping and bringing a lot more ethnic minorities out of um, hiding and bringing them into a place where they can shine their light and do good for their community. So at the moment, a lot of what I'm doing is community orientated. Um, I'm still modeling. I'm still doing a bit of influencing. But most importantly, I'm trying to be the right influencer um i'm trying to be an influencer with the right influence in the world so i'm still doing my social and political commentary
0: mate. yeah brilliant so much to uh you got so much going on there mate it's wonderful absolutely wonderful and all with you know all there talking about this amazing stuff it's interesting you mentioned the trials there actually i've um i've done a couple of episodes about that but i'll um it would be worth checking out an organization called saipan who um they come together to just connect people after using psychedelics for recovery from um mental health issues and uh because they say the people go on these trials and then come out the other side and once your follow-up's done then you're then you're done and they're kind of like connecting people to make sure these things are safe and to it's such a individual experience you know so to, it's a real community they're building they're doing some wonderful work it'd be very much worth checking those out if that's something you're interested
1: oh in. I'm, I'm definitely interested in that you're gonna have to send that through I'll to send me because, it through, yeah. because we know that the revolutionary the revolutionary power of psychedelics and we're the only civilization in society that does not use psychedelics right um we we demonize it and we still got in the uk this war on drug style approach of psychedelics and we know psychedelics has powerful healing properties for the mind so this is why i think more needs to be done about raising awareness of psychedelics and we need to remove the stigma and the shame surrounding psychedelics as well
0: yeah, yeah, very much so, man. Yeah, definitely. I'll um yeah, I'll send you some details about about them afterwards, man. But um, Sean, mate, thank you so much. That's um I learned a lot from that, man. It was a real pleasure to talk to you and um a big fan of uh of what you're doing and, and what you do. So thank you for your time today, mate. I appreciate it.
1: No, listen, man, the honor is mine, and I hope to everybody who's listening, you are renewed with some sort of hope and you don't give up on yourself. As I said, if you're crying, and you're in pain you might as well get a reward from it keep going do not give up on who you are the world needs you you are valued and you are inspirational and i love you most importantly mate that's beautiful thank you
0: very very much Cheers. Man. A big up to that proper mental podcast. A <laughs> podcast. A proper mental podcast.